Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson, sitting in for Bill. Bill is in Rome right now as a resident scholar at the American Academy in Rome. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday, April 1st. No joke. Inflation continues to drag on the economy and on Biden's suffering approval ratings. Will the oil release help him? Can he make progressives and moderates and his party happy? Trump's missing January 6th call logs. Does the January 6th committee need to find them? The committee is facing a time crunch now. Can they find their moorings before summer public hearings? Committee Democrats are mad that Garland isn't doing more, but can they force his hand? And we can't forget Trump's latest appeal to Putin. Joining me today are David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Hey, how you doing? Hi, David. Hunter Walker reporting on January 6th at theuprising.info. Good morning. Hello, how are you? Hi. And Kirk Beto, Managing Editor at National Journal Hotline. Good morning, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Let's jump right in. So right before we started this, we got new um, unemployment numbers, the unemployment rate down to 3.6. That's pretty remarkable. David, let's dig in on this. Inflation, the economy, they continue to be this drag on Biden. Um, They're pulling down his approval numbers. Do do good numbers like this show signs of of hope for the the Biden administration? Oh, very much so. And certainly they're going to feel that way, that uh, most of the economists that I've talked to fully expect the, the economy to grow throughout the year because we're still coming out of the pandemic. And I think that's a gradual process. And more people will start going back to work. Uh, more employers will will start hiring more people. The problem there is there will be a lot of economic growth, but that tends to fuel inflation. So I think that problem may be with us for the rest of the year. And we're talking about inflation rates of over 7%. And, and that's going to be a problem for the administration and for congressional Democrats seeking re-election. But it's just something they're going to have to deal with. They're going to, I think you'll look for them to stress the fact that more people are going to work. Uh, the economy is back in full. And hope that people just downplay the, the inflationary aspects of this. Kirk, can can he do anything about inflation? I mean, I think David's right where he says that, that an improving economy fuels it. Is there anything in his war chest that at least can make people think he's trying to help? Well, Democrats right now are really asking him to start using the power of the pen and roll out some executive orders and executive action to kind of wrangle inflation and, frankly, some of the other stalled uh, actions on his legislative agenda. With Congress so uh, evenly divided, you know, an evenly divided Senate, only five seats in the House, they're really looking to Biden to kind of 
do the uh, you know, the Green Lantern theory of the president, where if he just wills, if he just thinks it hard enough, then he can do something. But his hands are really tied here. He's been reluctant to really use that sort of presidential power in the same ways that you know a President Trump did, or you know even President Obama at certain points in his presidency. And frankly, the Democrats are kind of running out of time to right the ship before the the cake is baked in the midterms here. When is that cake baked? <laughs> I mean, is it is it April? Is it June? Is it July? August? September? How long do they have to to before the the timer pops? Well, you know, like any good chef, Democrats are and an anxious chef at that. Democrats are you know sticking the toothpick in there, seeing uh, if any sponge sticks there. But what they're looking at right now is you know I was just looking this morning at kind of the presidential polling averages for Trump and Obama at this time in their first terms as well. And you got to remember that both those presidents saw historic uh, losses, especially in the House during that first midterm. Uh, according to 538, uh, Trump is just a half point behind Biden at this point in the presidency, in their presidencies. And Obama was about seven points ahead of Biden right now. You know, obviously things are can change. Uh, I mean, look at the crazy news cycle we've been having just the last few weeks here. Um, and we still have the, the kind of the big issue hanging over the midterms right now that Democrats and Republicans are kind of sweating about is how the Supreme Court is going to rule on uh, that abortion case uh, sometime later this summer. Democrats are hoping that will energize their base going into the midterms. But right now, it doesn't seem, it, it seems like uh, that timer's ticking closer and closer now than ever before. I don't have an exact date on it yet. You got to keep checking, but it seems like we're almost to that point right now where it, it's almost a law. It, it seems like Democrats are almost a lost cause here. Biden, at least trying to appear to be doing something to help yesterday had a big announcement. Let's listen to that for a moment. Today I'm authorizing the release of 1 million barrels per day for the next six months over a 180 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is a wartime bridge. It will provide historic amount of supply for a historic amount of time, a six-month bridge to the fall. Hunter, you know, what really struck me in all of that remarks was his use of the word wartime. Um, I, you know, the, we have felt the nation has watched war across the ocean, um, but not really felt or been made to feel as if we are a country at war on purpose, right? I, I think it's a political move. Um, but we are a country at economic war, and we're feeling the um, the, the fallout of an economic war. Uh, do you think that this announcement makes people um, feel like the president is doing something, or does it sort of just feel like, you know, he's pa- he, you know paper over um, a bigger problem? Well, Ginger, I think that's a, a really, really good point. And, you know, just to begin, let, let me address kind of the broader economic question. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I saw yesterday um, a British publication actually hiring someone um, overseas, um, and they said they wanted them to cover the, quote, cost of living crisis. And I hadn't heard that term before, but I think that's like a really good way um, to describe some of the economic trends we're seeing now, um, particularly with rising housing costs. Um 
And so I think that, you know, even as we see low unemployment, we're seeing people deal with this cost crunch. Um, And it's really serious, especially like with the pandemic and, you know, um, gentrification that basically occurred in areas that didn't normally have it. Um, So this economic thing really, really is dangerous for Biden. Um, I think we've all been assuming the Democrats are cooked, but I think Ukraine is a bit of a wild card because we do, you know, have this history of wartime presidents having high approval, having the country rally around them a bit. Um, In my research, uh, particularly on the 6th, I spend a lot of time in sort of pretty far-right online spaces. And and one thing that I've noticed in the past couple of days that's super interesting is pro-Ukraine messages are one of the only things I've noticed be sort of bipartisan out there in like activist social media. Um, So I think it really is, you know, interesting. Ukraine's a bit of a political wild card. You're absolutely right that it's the opposite strategy we've seen in wartime in the past where sort of, you know, American presidents tried to hide the fact we were at war. Um, But Ukraine is not one that we started. um, And it is something that has this really interesting approval. Um, I also know, for example, my wife works at the World Food Program. And, um, you know, the donation activity that they're getting on Ukraine versus, say, um, Yemen, you know, in some of these other conflicts we've ignored, it's completely different. So people are really reacting to this. They do seem to potentially want to, you know, rally for the cause. And that could be very good for Biden amid sort of economic malaise. Let me ask you this question, because I think part of what we're watching unfold on the economic front is global. Um, We are not the only country with a labor shortage. We are not the only country with inflation. We are not the only country that is watching the price of goods, particularly the ones we purchased from China, go up. And we are not the only country trying to help the Ukrainians and being affected by this war. Um, But when we hear criticism of Biden, it's as if only our uh, unemployment benefits are the only reason anyone there's a labor shortage and only his policies and stimulus are the reason um, that we have inflation. Can they make the case to the American people, this White House, that it is a global issue? And are Americans really willing to look beyond our own backyard and see what's happening around the world and realize, oh, it's not just us, it's everyone else. Well, you, you know, that's that's a great point. You'll notice when I started that discussion, it was, it was actually the British who I'd heard sort of coined the term cost of living crisis. Um, and I do think, you know, when we're, when we're talking about that, all of the trends, you know, rising inequality, um, the, the housing costs that I think are really on the quality of life level, um, a big driver of this stuff began before Biden. Um, you know, could they address it that way? Maybe. One, one thing I find, I found interesting for years is that when presidential elections roll around, national elections roll around, um, we don't tend to address housing. Somehow the places we live are not one of these like traditional kitchen table issues along with like, you know, foreign policy, taxes, abortion, immigration. Like it's not in the main discussion menu. Um, So, you know, I I, I can't say I've really understood how how Democrats have messaged the economy for some time now. And, and, you know, 
it may be time for Biden to get creative and try some things that are new. I want to go back to the oil announcement for a second, David. Um, In his announcement, he didn't just announce a million barrels of oil a day. He also announced some efforts targeted at green energy, some use of the Defense Production Act, which um, if we remember two years ago when when Trump started using it, it was really novel, and now it seems not that novel at all. Um, But some things that look to be trying to keep his left flank happy um, by promoting some some oil alternatives. Can he keep both sides happy in this type of situation? Or is that a fool's errand? Uh, I doubt he can do it in the short term. You know, he also talks a lot about trying to encourage people to buy electric cars. So he's often used the, the spike in oil prices as, an, as, a, as a reason to develop alternative energy sources. But we're still years away on a lot of those sources. And it's not going to help him before November of 2022. That's for sure. So I I, I think you're right. I think he's trying to placate the left of his party who were very, very invested in the Green New Deal. But uh, I, I don't see any political benefits for him in the short term. Let's move on um, to the other story of the week, and that was the January 6th um, committee and these missing phone logs. So um, we saw a report in the Washington Post. We had known that there were some missing logs, but now we know that there are seven hours of these missing logs um, and that we just don't know who might have been calling or who the president was calling. Um, Hunter, can you break down for us what it is that is missing and what we should be making of this development? Okay. So so this is kind of this is, there's a lot going on here, but the, the broadest strokes is that, you know, um, the Washington Post, CBS News and CNN and sort of a spate of dueling and, and co-exclusive reports um, broke the news that there was this seven plus hour gap in Trump's call logs for the day um, and the day of January 6th. So essentially that's interesting because um, it was almost like he'd gone radio silent for you know the key period as the Capitol was being um, stormed. And we know, we have already known that during that period, he supposedly spoke to various people, including I think um, Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and Mike Pence. So it raised this question of sort of, you know, had the White House either, you know, thrown out or not kept the records of his day, right? Um, now, I think there's a couple reasons, you know, that this this may be making more noise than it should. Um, and the first is that, you know, we have all known that Donald Trump was famous for using a personal cell phone while he was president um, and also using the private phone in the residence. Um, Axios had a, a pretty good report they published the other day that said Trump was, quote unquote, legendary for using his cell phone. And actually, he preferred to take his most sensitive calls in the residence, um, including Steve Bannon, who they claim he, he would not ever talk to in the Oval Office. So we had already known that sort of Trump did things to avoid the official record. Also, um, you know, and, and this story pointed it out very well from Martha Kumar, who's sort of the, the just best historian on, on the, the office of the president. Um, the Presidential Records Act that folks have made a lot of hay over um, in, in recent um, weeks with some of the revelations about Trump and his team in January 6th, um, it's a post-Watergate regulation that theoretically um, required the White House to uh, keep pretty good records. However, it has no enforcement mechanism. And the courts have never really made a case out of it. All the times it's come up, they've sort of noted that it 
complete it requires the White House to keep records while granting almost total leeway in how they do that. So I don't think we've really, you know, seen a potential criminal referral in this situation. However, there was one interesting um, report from The Guardian, which was that Trump supposedly made a call with a sort of a first three numbers that indicate it was the White House landline. Um, the committee has a record of that, and yet the White House didn't keep one. If, if you know, that indicates potential tampering, but again, I'm not sure the Records Act has enough teeth for that to matter. But Kirk, let's talk about the political teeth that this might bring about, right? So um, I think there's a lot of questions about legally what can be done, but even more questions about politically. The January 6th committee, looking at a real deadline of the end of the year um, to get anything done, and even more so a deadline of the summer to start doing things in public, do, do they need to find these records? I mean, do they need to piece together who he was talking to? I mean, is that the kind of thing that could make a difference politically, publicly, um, to, to average folks at home? Well, the members of the committee certainly hope so. Uh, I mean, there was a story, few, I believe it was last week, that talked about how they're uh, trying to contract with journalists and authors to write the definitive narrative of January 6th and the committee's findings once they get closer to wrapping up to really try and get that to the biggest audience possible here. I mean, they are very conscious of, they appear to be very conscious of the political optics of what they're doing here. And that's why they've been sort of reluctant, at least at first, to subpoena members of Congress as well. But uh, as we saw last week after Trump yanked his endorsement from uh, Mo Brooks, who was a speaker at the Stop the Steal rally before the insurrection, uh, Mo Brooks went out and then said that Trump had been repeatedly pressuring him to hold a special presidential election to revoke the results. And that added kind of fuel to the fire of, okay, should we send subpoenas out to members of Congress? Should we hold them in contempt? Like, what are we going to do here? And I think, you know, the revelations this week have been pretty shocking. Uh, I don't know if they're necessarily breaking through into the mainstream, though, in a way that public hearings later this summer potentially could when you have those visuals, when you have this, the the Trump cast of characters back before this committee answering questions. I think we got to wait and see the real political fallout from this until we get them on TV. But the the one thing that I'm going to be watching for uh, this summer as those hearings get rolling is how much time, how Liz Cheney um, kind of handles the question, presents herself. She's in a very contentious primary right now up in Wyoming. That primary isn't until August. And if they don't start holding hearings until June, July, she's going to have to spend a lot of time down here, not a whole lot of time out on the campaign trail. And you bet those are going to be watched very closely up there. So that's something that I'm going to be watching for like more immediate political fallout uh, with Liz Cheney. Let's listen to a member of the committee, Jamie Raskin, talk a little bit about what, what they're doing. We are on the side of the people of Ukraine against Vladimir Putin, who is not a genius, but a mass murderer. And we stand strong on the side of democracy, freedom, the Constitution, and the rule of law against people who smashed our police officers in the face with Confederate battle flags and tried to cancel out the results of our presidential election. David, 
let me, and when we hear Jamie Raskin sort of invoking Ukraine, you know, equating their mission with that in Ukraine, um, is this a sign that maybe maybe their moment has passed on that committee, that uh, if you have to start comparing yourself to a nation at war, um, that you've run out of things to talk about on the home front? Pretty much, although it would it would make sense to try to tie it to, uh, to Putin because of Donald Trump's continued admiration for the Russian leaders. So I think that his critics would be remiss if they didn't try to in- invoke Putin in just every argument against Trump. But yeah, I think you're right. I, I do think the committee is out of gas. It, I don't, you just don't hear much about it on the campaign trail. You don't hear much about it at all. Um, the committee was, remember a few months ago when the committee was start, said they were going to start public hearings in April? Well, April is here and there's no sign that we're going to have any public hearings anytime soon. Um, they seem to have a difference as to, as to making the case against Trump. Uh, a couple of months ago, committee members were talking about the three hours of silence from Donald Trump while the riot at the U.S. Capitol was going on. Well, now they seem to be suggesting that he was on the phone all the time talking to to coordinators of the riot. So, so which is it? I think they're having trouble figuring out exactly what, what Trump did. And I, I think they're afraid that the public is getting kind of bored with it. And I, 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 I have real questions as to just how much impact this whole thing is going to have. I think we're also hearing just an increase in frustration coming from the committee about Merrick Garland. Hunter, this sort of now out in the public bubbled up frustration from these members Maybe an admission that they're they're not going to be able to get much done themselves, and they want Garland to do it. But can they force his hand? Can they even encourage him? You think at this point to do anything more than what we're seeing prosecuting the people who were on the ground that day? Well, let me reframe this discussion a bit because you know when I said that I think the you know call log story was making too much noise. Um, I, I meant that, you know, the implications of it are just not that shocking um, and really, uh, you know, don't exist in the legal realm. Um, but keep in mind, that was a story from the press. That wasn't a story from the committee. Um, and I don't think that is even close to the most important, um, you know, finding that the committee has so far um, that we even know about publicly. Um, I think the committee has found some pretty shocking stuff, um, you know, particularly with regards to um, the Trump team's, you know, role in ignoring concerns about militant groups, direct involvement between militant groups and organizers who were, you know, in constant contact with the White House and the Trump campaign, um, potentially, you know, a deliberate sort of order to march without um, proper security, um, several comments of direct incitement from the president. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot of really, really, really serious stuff here. Um, but I think you're right that, you know, Ukraine is is dominating the discussion right now. Um, this is not penetrating with people um, as it once might have. Um, and, um, you know, given that, I think they are... Um, you know, needing to deal with the question of kind of how to present this information. And the first thing I would say is, let's be clear that sort of the response we're having was a choice, right? This happened in January 2021. They basically waited until that summer to even begin forming the committee. Um, You know, that had a lot of consequences in terms of public interest and frankly, also on the investigative front, because I I know for a fact there's certain records that, you know, they uh, lost time to pursue uh, and and are no longer kept after, after say, six months. Um, so they've really, you know, they chose, you know, to wait for a minute. 
They are now prosecuting this. But meanwhile, Garland, you know, what we've seen, the DOJ has focused on the people who entered the building and on militant groups, not this question of sort of the Trump administration's role and higher level organization. I think if the committee finds something extremely compelling and makes that referral, it'll be really, really interesting to see um, what happens with Garland. One kind of interesting side game I'm watching right now is that the committee has already made referrals for contempt. One of those was for Mark Meadows. Um, There's been no action on that from the DOJ. Um, It's moving at a slower pace um, than others have. And I'm really interested in that because, you know, Meadows is at the center of a lot of the most serious allegations of what the committee has found. And he's also facing the separate voter fraud case. And I'm just kind of wondering what legal wrangling he's in the middle of right now. Well, there's lots more to talk about, including the Trump appeal to Putin this week, which we will get to after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill along with David Jackson, Hunter Walker, and Kurt Beto. Today's podcast brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. One and a half million members strong. The Teamsters Union are America's largest and most diverse labor union. They represent every aspect of American, the American workforce from vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, and bakers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, airline pilots to zookeepers. Under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, who will soon be retiring from the Teamsters Union after 24 years as president of the union. We salute uh, President Hoffa, the members of the Teamsters Union, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
We are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson, the Deputy Washington Editor from NBC News, sitting in for Bill along with David Jackson of USA Today, Hunter Walker reporting at theuprising.info, and Kirk Beto from the National Journal. So let's jump in to this Trump Putin um, appeal that we heard earlier this week. And let's let's start off by listening to what, what Trump had to say. As long as Putin now is not exactly a fan of our country, let him explain why did the mayor of Moscow's wife give the Bidens, both of them, three and a half million dollars. That's a lot of money. So now I would think Putin would know the answer to that. I think he should release it. David, you spent a lot of time in the Trump White House. And so I feel like you can decode a little bit of what we just heard here. Um, What is he talking about? And is there any validity to this? Um, And were you surprised by it? Uh, I wasn't surprised about it. And no, there's no validity to it. It's it's one of these many urban legends that have grown up around uh, both Hunter, around Hunter Biden. And in this particular case, it's an allegation that the the wife of the Moscow mayor once gave $3.5 million to a company supposedly co-founded by Hunter Biden. In fact, the money went to another company with a similar name. I mean, the names are very similar, but it wasn't Hunter Biden's company. It was some other company that this money went to. In short, there's absolutely no evidence that that Hunter Biden ever got money from from Russia, much from anybody in Russia, much less the the wife of the former mayor. Yet this myth has grown up to where people are, are... or, you know, or when I wrote when I wrote the story about uh, Trump's latest request of Putin, I got all these emails from people saying, well, what about the money from the wife of the Moscow mayor? The people are treating this as an absolute fact. And, and it's, it's just not there's just no evidence that that ever happened. I, we've seen this with Trump so many times, David. I, I, I want to just dig in a little bit. I mean, he says things that are not true, that are demonstrably not true. But people believe him because he said them. And the thing I wonder is if Putin fabricates some evidence, right, of which he has an incentive to do because the Biden is making his war in Ukraine very difficult. Um, I mean, do people believe it because Trump has planted the seed? I mean, do you think that that's effective? Well, of course, that's when the Hunter, the so-called Hunter Biden laptop surfaced during the 2020 campaign. Uh, Democrats said that they thought that the the entire computer was part of Russian disinformation. So that concern has been out there for a long time. Turns out it, look, it looks like the Hunter Biden laptop is legit, but there's just not that much evidence on it, which is another myth that the Trump people are trying to promote. But uh, to answer your question, yes, I mean, people will believe anything Donald Trump says, and he is a conspiracy theorist. He hears this stuff about all these nefarious conspiracies and all these plots that his enemies are up to, and he he believes them. He either believes them or he's willing to believe them in order to gin up his supporters, one or the other. But he's constantly doing it. He's done his entire political career, and he's continuing to do it. Yeah. I mean, I think the only evidence on that laptop was that Hunter has been a troubled man for a long time. Um, but you know, when we look, Kirk, going into the midterms um, about lines like this, about Trump pushing lines like this, it, it seems, at least from my vantage point, that there's no political repercussions for Trump if he again appeals to a foreign leader in a wartime to help him. Um, is there a ramification for Biden? Are voters looking at this and, and blaming him for it? Well, uh, you know, I'm, we're trying to parse out what impact Trump is having, not just in Republican politics, because he, despite all these comments, he is still 
the most powerful, most influential figure within the party. Uh, if you talk to any Republican strategist, it's even despite, you know, calling Putin smart and savvy, uh, despite, uh, you know, having kind of a uh, redo of the line from the 2016 campaign, you know, Russia, if you're listening, there doesn't seem to be any real repercussions within the party right now for that type of rhetoric. Now, for Biden right now, I mean, I just don't know what impact something like this laptop story like or Trump beating the drum on this would have on him or any Democrats right now. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that Republicans are rallying behind this message, even some of the more far-right uh, candidates that Trump has backed in some of these competitive primaries and general elections. They don't seem to be following his lead on this and are scratching their heads just as much as we are over this insistence on Hunter Biden's laptop and this shadowy conspiracy between Hunter and Joe Biden and uh, Ukrainian officials. It doesn't seem to necessarily be catching fire. Hunter Walker, um, you uh, spend a lot of time in the far right uh, depths of the internet. Uh, is this something that they're talking about? Is this something that's become a rallying cry? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they're they're talking about this, all right. And and you know, I mean, first off, I I think um, you know what was said earlier about these things that are objectively untrue getting said by Trump among his faithful. You know, anything he or the pro-Trump media says is basically, you know, taken uncritically, right? So so in their mind, Hunter Biden is a big deal. And and another narrative that is a huge deal is this idea that the media, quote unquote, ignored Hunter Biden, um, which is demonstrably false. I mean, I mean, we do know about some of the, the real issues surrounding Hunter Biden from stories that uh, broke in the New York Times and the New Yorker, as mainstream as it gets. Um so, you know, I, I, I really don't understand the, the persistence of that narrative, um, you know, other than sort of a pure partisan desire to have a lot of scandal around the Bidens. And of course, it requires a little bit of magical thinking around Trump too, right? Like, like this Moscow mayor story might not be true, but Donald Trump absolutely pursued business in Russia, you know, lied about it. I'm specifically talking about the, the Moscow hotel deal that was, you know, going as he was running for president and his team directly reached out to Putin, um, you know, with the Michael Cohen's clumsy email to Dmitry Peskov um, during that project and, and potentially even more. So, it, you know, it's crazy because, he, you know, he's accusing someone of something he sort of demonstrably did. And certainly if we're talking about, you know, the general corruption around Hunter of sort of profiting on the family name. I mean, you know, the Trump family, including their White House positions and their, you know, foreign wheeling and dealing at the hotel during his presidency, like anything Hunter Biden did, apart from the really personal issues, um, they have done on a grander scale. Um, and yet his his people definitely don't see it that way. David, let's wrap this up. I, I think we, you know, lots of questions about the midterms, but what I think what people really want to know is, are we watching the early blows of the 2024 presidential election? Oh, for sure. That's what it's all about for Trump. Um, it's, uh, 
Yeah, I think if you if you'll notice, a lot of his endorsements are in key states like Georgia and Michigan and Pennsylvania, the states that will decide the electoral college the next time around. I guess I should mention that in recent weeks, I've I've talked with a couple of uh, fairly close Trump associates who wonder whether he's in fact going to run in 2024. That it's going to be a real pain, and he may be facing legal liability from the Justice Department and a bunch of other reasons. There, they question whether in fact he's going to run. I think it's. I think he will run for sure. I don't see how he can help but run at this point. And uh, it's, it looks, it's certainly looking, looking like we're going to have a rematch between Trump and Biden. But that, that, to answer your question, that, this is what it's all about, his positioning for 2024. Certainly that's what's going on in Trump's mind. And I think Biden has it in the back of his mind as well. This has been a great conversation today. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News sitting in for Bill along with David Jackson, Hunter Walker, and Kirk Beto. Now it's time for your favorite story of the week. Funny, sad, important, or just a great read. Hunter, why don't you go first? I really enjoyed this story that came out about um, abandoned goldfish. And these these come out periodically where basically – you know, they'll find goldfish are a horrible invasive species when kind of folks are dumping them out. Um, and um, they can grow to these massive, massive sizes um, in natural bodies of water. Um, and basically some new um, data came out just west of Toronto um, on this area where goldfish have just wreaked havoc. Um, and if you look this up, there's stories in the Scientific American and elsewhere with these just utterly bizarre pictures of like the local naturalists holding these like bowling ball sized goldfish. Um, so I, I, I can't get enough of those, those grotesque goldfish pictures. Um, but that being said, people really shouldn't do that. Oh yeah. Don't free your pet, uh, out into the wild. Any of them, David, how about you? I'm going to go with a favorite story of the month and a, and a favorite series of stories, and that is all the coverage of the 50th anniversary of the release of the film The Godfather. Um, it's it's amazing to think that it's been five decades since that movie was released, yet it's still in, as fresh and relevant today as it was when it was released back in March of 1972. And uh, the New York uh, we USA Today has done several stories about it. New York Times, Washington Post, they're all available on the internet. But I think the, the best repository of all the stories about the making of the film and it's the impact that it's had on the culture is uh, the book by Mark Seal, which is it, which takes as its title, one of the most famous lines from the film, you know, leave, take the gun, excuse me, leave the gun, take the cannoli. And it's by Mark Seal. And it's just a, just a very interesting look at the, at the making of, of an American classic that still holds up today. That is one that I think is getting a lot of attention right now. People love that movie. Um, I think men too. Yes, um, it's a it's a man's movie. Um, Kirk, well, I, it lost Diane Keaton's career too. So there are there are some people. You're right. It's mostly true. a male movie, but there are some, there are a lot of things for for all people. I think. I think so. I think so. Um, Kirk, how about you? Uh, David, I've really been enjoying uh, all the Godfather coverage too. We actually did a Godfather themed uh, newsletter for Hotline uh, <laughs> last week, and everything was all the quotes and everything. So I was, I'm very, very, very happy with it too. Uh, so I uh, went to the University of North Carolina, and this week has been a wreck on my nerves ahead of tomorrow's game against Duke. And to calm my nerves, I have been reading every single piece of content out there about the game previewing it all the storylines and to just try and just just drown myself in all of it and 
the best one that I've read is an article in Sports Illustrated by Pat Ford uh, looking at Hubert Davis. He's the first-year head coach of the Tar Heels, stepping in for Roy Williams. And the headline is, uh, where are the doubters now? Coach Hubert Davis, the heart of the Tar Heels tourney run. And it kind of looks at his history, how he was so well-positioned to really made this improbable run to the final four and really talks about his commitment to the Carolina way. And it was a really, really cool look at it. And I am ready for, uh, I'm ready as I can be for tomorrow night's game. Well, I'm sorry to say that as the child of an NC state grad, um, I might not be pulling for you and had also considered (laughs) um, making my favorite story, the Washington post feature on coach K and his, um, relationship with his son-in-laws and his love of gardening. Um, <laughs> you're looking for the Coach K for- propaganda is strong. The Coach <laughs> K propaganda is way too strong. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking for coverage of both, but I'm actually going to go instead with this story that ran in the New York Times this week. It ran yesterday um, by David Yaffe Bellaney, and it is about Ben McKenzie, who I did not know um, was in a starring role on The O.C. Lots of people will probably know him from that show, who has become the voice of maybe reason or criticism in the world of crypto. Uh, He thinks that crypto is being used to scam people and has sort of taken um, the position as the voice of, uh, maybe we'll say reason. Uh, The story is fascinating. It's about how he got into this world, how he took a course um, online during the pandemic about investing in crypto. And his takeaway was that it was really just being used to fleece average people. Um, And I highly recommend it, whether you watch the OC or not, um, to look at sort of a really um, interesting, critical voice of someone who isn't uh, an investment and talks in regular language um, about the problems that crypto has brought for all of us. That's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to David Jackson of USA Today, Hunter Walker reporting at theuprising.info, and Kirk Beto from the National Journal. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, who is spending the next month as a resident fellow at the American Academy in Rome. But he'll have an interview next Tuesday with Ron Brownstein of The Atlantic and CNN on the attack on democracy, civil rights, and human rights going on at the local level in red states around the country. Again, thanks for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.